I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I live in Minneapolis, and so does this week's guest, Curtis Sittenfeld. And as a Minneapolitan, I've spent a lot of this week wondering, what if, what if police here hadn't murdered George Floyd last Monday night? What if the officers responsible had been arrested and charged as soon as possible? Hell, what if the police didn't exist and had been abolished? What if I could rewind time back so far that I could see all the different possibilities? Maybe things could be different from the utterly shitty way they are right now. I can definitely think of some things that I would change about this week, which seems like one of the, maybe the one of the worst weeks in America in my like lifetime, which is longer than I would like it to be. Well, I, I like, I'm happy my life is this long, but it's been a bad week. Um, did you ever write a novel or story that you used in alternative future? I haven't, but I'm, this week makes it seem like a really appealing thing to do. And as we teeter on the very particular political precipice of this moment, we have a guest who has done it. Curtis Sittenfeld has written a novel with a juicy alternate premise. What if Hillary Rodham had never married Bill Clinton? Curtis is the best-selling author of six novels, Prep, The Man of My Dreams, American Wife, Sisterland, Eligible, and most recently Rodham. Her first story collection, You Think It, I'll Say It, was published in 2018 and picked for Reese Witherspoon's book club. Her books have been selected by the New York Times, Time, Entertainment Weekly, and People for their 10 best books of the year lists, optioned for television and film, and translated into 30 languages. She's also our pal and a previous guest on this show. Curtis, welcome. Thank you. So what kind of politician is Hillary Clinton? Is it fair to call her a centrist? And if so, what is a centrist? <laughs> is that a political type or is it a personal type? 
Um, well, I'm, I'm very flattered that you think I'm capable of answering that question. I feel like, I feel like it's as if we're on the, on meet the press or something, or like the three of us are on CNN. I mean, um, I think it's fair to say that Hillary is a centrist, but I also, I certainly do not consider myself any kind of political expert. Um, and yeah, like like it's it's actually it's funny to me because I don't like, I, I mean I've answered a lot of questions about this book so far, and I don't think anyone's asked me. <laughs> Congratulations. Well, we had this idea for an episode actually that was going to be like after Biden got nominated, that was a sort of revenge of the centrists, right? <laughs> and so we still, I still am thinking about that. You know, like where. She fits into that, you know, what sort of continuity there is between her and Biden. Um, if we're just trying to do the same thing that we did with her, that we're doing with Biden again. I mean, those are all sort of things that have been floating around in my mind. What I was thinking about when I read the book as well. Well, you know what? I feel like this, you know, might sound like it's buttering you both up and you you can cut it if you, if you want to. I give you my, my blessing. Not if it's buttering or, up. We're not going to cut it. That's not you, you can keep it. But I, I actually, when I listen to this podcast, like I, I'm very impressed. Like I think that both of you can do something that I literally can't do. Like I'm, I think I'm a more coherent person writing fiction than making any nonfiction argument, no matter what it is. And when I, when I try to make an argument in nonfiction, I feel like I'm like standing on quicksand and I, and I like, you know, borderline, I'm not making sense. I hope that doesn't hinder our conversation going forward, but I definitely feel like in the fiction, nonfiction, I'm, I'm, I'm like all fiction. Like I'm, like I'm, I'm impressed by both of your abilities to kind of, you know, go back and forth and say like, this is what me, this is what this means. And I almost feel like I can produce the fictional thing more than and I can I can talk about it to some extent but then when you when you ask a question that's primarily a nonfiction question I start to think like you know like is Hillary Clinton a centrist like that's to, that's a question that's totally grounded in fact then I think like <laughs> is, is Hillary you know like if you said like what's inside Hillary's heart I would feel much more comfortable trying to answer that well when you think about her as a character do you think of her as I think a word that I associate with centrism is maybe pragmatism. I, I do think she's pragmatic. Like, I think that she's, you know, known for um, her ability to work across the aisle or, you know, when she was in Senate, in the Senate, I think that was true, um, which I think is actually maybe less valued now than, say, 15 or 20 years ago but yeah I, I would say I, I think of her as a pragmatist and I think it seems like she's been that way since Wellesley or Yale Law School where she was not I mean it's it's funny because I think sometimes she's been painted as like radical and then sometimes she's you know painted as being like a, a pawn of Wall Street or something which I, I'm not sure either is true but um but I I would say that I think from a very early age, it seems like she valued getting things done and was able to get things done, um, which, you know, in, instead of sort of taking a stand that do doesn't necessarily result in anything. Yeah, it kind of makes me wonder what either real Hillary or character Hillary or I don't know how those two intersect in your mind, but what they think of Biden. 
I, I, I mean, I wonder too. The weird part is, like, if you said to me, um, I mean, which maybe you are, if you're saying, what does Hillary think of Biden? I would say, like, I don't know. And then if you said, well, okay, can you write a short story? I'd be like, sure. Like, like I'll, I'll make up what she, what she thinks. And, and it would probably be like, you know, like, like it would start like, oh, like I shouldn't have eaten that quiche for lunch or something. Like it wouldn't be like, oh, that, that bill he supported in, you know, 1988. But she does have opinions in the novel. The character Hillary Rodham has opinions of politicians. There's one politician who she, who she thinks we'll get to later, who she thinks is disorganized. And so she joins a campaign. Uh, and I would think, I'm going to say, well, well, let's talk about your fictional Hillary. I think that she would be like, I ran and I lost and now this guy is going to run and he is so disorganized and he can barely even say a sentence and why, what the hell? And, and he's going to win. And I, that pisses me off. That's not fair. That's what, I, that's what I imagine that Hillary saying in her mind. If the question is, are male candidates um, given an easier pass or held to a lower standard than female candidates running for office, I, I think that Hillary would probably be the least surprised person in the world that the answer is yes. Um, you know, I don't, it doesn't seem like, like the way that this election cycle has played out doesn't seem like it would be um, at all surprising to, to Hillary. I mean, at the same time, I think that she probably passionately wants Biden to be elected, you know? So, so, so those questions of like, you know, would he have been her first choice candidate? Like, I would think not, although I don't know. I mean, and weirdly, even like writing a novel that's really presumptuous and like written in the first person from Hillary's point of view, um, I think it almost forces me to make this distinction of like what I do and don't know and or like what's speculative, which is almost everything. So I, I wouldn't like I think somebody a pundit on a CNN show might say like, well, Hillary thinks blah, 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 blah. And I would I don't I don't think I would say like Hillary seems to think or, you know, based <laughs> based on different choices she's made. But but I do. I mean, sort of Sugi, what you were saying, like, like, I definitely think of two distinct categories real hillary and fictional hillary and i'm i'm an authority on fictional hillary (laughs) um well uh, on that note maybe um to go to that fictional space in which you feel more comfortable um i wonder if you could read for us a little bit um from there's a passage in which she has a conversation with a political advisor who counsels her in a certain way and sort of gives us a window into that, um, into the way in which she thinks politically about some of those opponents. Um, and I think it's, it would maybe like help us get into this, that space a little bit of thinking about fictional Hillary and her opinions. Um, Um, okay. So this is, this is in 1991 and she's, she's a law professor at Northwestern in Chicago. Also, hypothetically, I said to Greg over the phone, if I do decide to jump into the Senate race, how damning is it if I have a co-worker, another law professor who's married and has a child, and he and I hold hands and hug in our offices, but we don't have sex and we've never kissed. After a beat, Greg said, how many people know? Besides us, I think only my friend Marine. Ask him if he's told anyone and make sure Marine can keep her mouth shut. She can confirm it. How long has it been going on? 
three and a half months, you just, what, feel each other up? Not even that. We really only hug and hold hands, and only in our offices with the doors closed. I've heard of a lot, Greg said, but I didn't know kinks could be G-rated. Stop immediately. The public can barely wrap its head around a female senator, and they're sure as shit not going to put up with a female senator who's boning someone else's husband. I'm not remotely close to boning him. The nuances of this will fall on deaf ears. Stop. By the way, I said, the reason Bill Clinton and I broke up back in 1975 is that he kept cheating on me. How ironic. Are you looking forward to 60 Minutes? The furor around the cabaret singer's charges wasn't dissipating, and Bill and Sarah Grace were going to address the controversy on an episode of 60 Minutes airing after the Super Bowl. I'm not sure I'll watch, I said. My whole family will be at my brother's, and there's no way I'm watching Bill's interview with my parents present. Then come to my place, and we'll order Szechuan Walk's finest. I don't know if I want to watch. Hillary, I'm not even going to waste time pretending this is a real discussion. I hate football, so come over in the last inning, or whatever they're called. When I told my parents I wouldn't be at Huey's, my father said with evident pleasure, it looks like your communist boyfriend really got his tit caught in a ringer this time, huh? By the way, I realized I said it was 1991. It's January 1992, importantly, in that passage. I love that passage. Um, (laughs) I just want to say, like, in particular, as a fan of Catherine Graham, when I got to that particularly cruel comment from her dad, um, I appreciated the reference. uh, Oh, wait, is it is it the tit caught in a ringer? Yeah. Wait, is he supposed to be the origin of that? Not him. Well, I think I'm assuming he's quoting in some way that he's like quoting Katie Graham. I don't think that's not intentional. Wait, what's the, did she, did she? So that is a reference to Watergate. Um, Oh, oh, oh. But isn't that like an expression? I have never heard it except in reference to Katie Graham, but it's possible. It's a, that's a, that, I heard that a lot in Kansas City. That's Did you? Maybe it's regional. Maybe it's regional. (laughs) Um, I think my, my personal reference to it as a kid who grew up in, in Maryland, in the D.C. area, and sort of the thick of that kind of journalism is that every time I see the tit in a ringer phrase, I, I'm like, Katie Graham. Um, <laughs> That's so, I so like, fucked. <laughs> and I, I read it as like a four-layered cruel comment by, um, by, by um, her dad. Oh, that's um, interesting. That is interesting. Because, yeah, of course, Hillary, you know, was on the impeachment inquiry team for, for Nixon. Yeah, so I thought it, like, it made a lot as of sense. As a young lawyer, yeah. So for me, I you know one of the non pleasures of the novel is getting to know the non political side of Hillary Clinton. Even though we started off with political questions, I mean, I like the idea of imagining her saying like using the verb boning is a surprise. I didn't know that that was what she did in her private conversations. But hey, wait, I think I, I think it's I think it's the guy she talks to. Who, but doesn't who she says, repeat it in that? I think she uses. Yeah, that's that true. Term, she, right? she says it back to him. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> it's funny because so I have an aunt who was a freshman at Wellesley when Hillary was a senior there. And so I would, uh, she was, my aunt is one of many people that I would like ask questions. And one time I said to my aunt, would you have said fuck you to someone in the seventies if you were really angry at them? And she said, no, like, it's like, and she's, and she's no prude. So, so I think that like, um, or yeah, like, would you have, would you have said it in college or would you, would you have said it, you know, five years after college? I think, I think I do ever say fuck you once, but it's, it's years later. We work up to that. So. <laughs> That's interesting. Like, we don't really think about that as a moment of feminist evolution. Like, when is it that? 
Well, you recognize you, that, you know, these political figures have personal lives where they use a totally different vocabulary than the vocabulary that they use when they're speaking to everyone else. So we're not used to them using that vocabulary. Now, I think that the public, getting back to the subject that we were on about the difference between the way men and fe- male and female politicians are treated, the public is used to the idea of like, a male politician cursing and, and saying all kinds of crazy stuff because there have been lots of novels about that, but there aren't very many novels about female politicians and how they really personally speak. And I thought that was really one of the fascinating things that you had to develop an internal language for Hillary. Does, was that, you know, how did you do that? How did that happen? Um, it's interesting to think about because, I mean, weirdly, I, and I'm, I feel like I feel like I'm I hope I'm not presenting myself as like totally lacking in self-awareness during this conversation. But I didn't really think about like I definitely read a bunch of nonfiction books about female politicians, but I, I didn't think about this book in the context of you know, whether other books about female politicians exist. Um, so a couple things. I mean, as I was saying, I I read the memoirs of a bunch of female senators, including, you know, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, um, and then, uh, oh, Claire McCaskill, um, who unfortunately is no longer a member of the Senate, but she's a very colorful person. Um, and then there was actually, I don't know if either of you ever listened to this, there was a, a podcast created by the Clinton Foundation and Hillary's campaign in like the summer and fall of 2016 called With Her. Have either of you listened to this or did you know about it? Um, And it's, I listened to it not at the time, but afterwards. And it was actually revelatory for me to listen to it because in the very first few minutes, the podcast host, who I think is a founder of, or a co-founder of, is it called Pineapple Street? Pod, it's one of those sort of podcast yeah, yeah, I've heard empires. Of that. I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah. So he like you know lives in Brooklyn. Um, he is sort of chatting with her, and she sounds more unguarded than I've ever heard her sound in an interview in my entire life. And I've you know heard her speak in interviews for almost 30 years. And it, it kind of made me realize how much journalists sort of approach her with skepticism, or you can almost hear the, the kind of like impatience or cynicism in their tone. And then not surprisingly, she responds in a guarded way. Um, and, and, but because, and, and, you know, a critic could say like the podcast is total propaganda. Um, which I have some feelings about that, but, but, um, you know, she, because she knows that clearly this is being made to, for her to look good. Like she just, I, I think she sounds more like she would sound if she were having lunch with friends or something where she's, you know, very smart and, you know, kind of focused, but just more relaxed and warm. And so that was in a literal way I could hear her voice. And there's actually that podcast, one episode uh, gives the recording of her 1969 Wellesley commencement speech, which, you know, she got national attention for. And to there's something like really poignant about hearing her young voice where she simultaneously you can hear like her you know, self of her early 20s, and she sounds like her grown-up self, and there's, there's sort of this, like, middle ground. It's it's very interesting and evocative. And that's the speech that begins the novel, uh, which is such is an interesting f- place. Yeah. <laughs> 
such an interesting place. I mean, it's such an interesting place to begin because, you know, people forget, I think, that version of her, maybe. And, and also the way in which, right, that was a very pragmatic moment for her to get something done, to go back to our first question. Um, I'm also really interested in what you're getting at about the differences. I mean, the differences, of course, in the way that we all speak in Register, you know, um, for our listeners, you know, Curtis and I both live in Minneapolis and, um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that I get to hang out with you in person or did before the pandemic. And, you know, just the way that we speak when we're being recorded versus not being recorded, the way that we speak when we're in a group of people, um, with maybe whom we identify on a gender spectrum, like the way that we like, you know, the, the affinity groups or like certain groups of comfort allow us to talk in a certain way. And like this novel gives us a, this great glimpse into who, you know, we might imagine her to be when she's talking to, you know, everyone from a staff member to whom she feels close to her housekeeper. And we also, she has a lot of sex in this novel. Um, she just has Thank a you lot for of noticing, sex. Suki. I just, I just, I, it, it, I, I happen to notice it ha- comes up a couple times and this is at odds with a lot of media portrayals of her. You know, there's sort of the classic sort of cruel stereotype of her as frigid. Um, and in your book and in real life, I think, you know, those the media portrays her in that way. And how did you think about approaching those scenes and and how do you think it challenges the kind of, um, you know, older person trying to be cool? You know, she she ran, obviously, um, as you know, now we have all of these politicians who are older and. I think, you know, our imaginations often don't extend to including older people as sexual beings. And then there's also kind of, you know, her just chilling in Cedar Rapids moment. And then there's this kind of your portrayal of her as, as someone who's romantic and has a lot of sex. Um, so how did you think about those scenes? Well, OK, so the premise of the novel obviously is what if Hillary hadn't married Bill? Like, what if she'd fallen in love with him? And, you know, in real life, he proposed twice and she said no. And then she said yes the third time. But what if she had also said no the third time? But it wasn't like I wanted to eliminate Bill from the historical record or I wanted to eliminate him from her life. Like, I still wanted them to fall in love. And so it seemed like this really natural, organic thing that, like, you know, for for these two people in their early 20s to be really excited about each other and really smitten and that physical chemistry seemed like a totally normal part of that. Um, And yeah, I mean, so that's that's one thing. I guess I also would say something that's kind of interesting to me is at, at some point someone said something like about, you know, haven't we all read or heard enough about like Bill Clinton and sex. And I thought this is not Bill Clinton and sex. I mean, like, yeah, he's present and (laughs) yeah, there's sex, but that's not, that's not the perspective. You know, it's this sort of shift in perspective. Um, I'm actually really curious because I don't, you know, I've, I've done a few interviews for this book, but I don't think I've been interviewed by fellow fiction writers. And in some ways, I think there's more sex in more books that's more explicit than, than a lot of people realize. And so I don't I don't even think it's like the sex. I think it is maybe like the fact that it's famous people or it's people who are now in their 70s. I mean, it's in the book, they're in their 20s, but in real life, they're in their 70s. Um, I don't know. I mean, do you, do you guys have an opinion on that? Do you think uh, Hillary's a centrist? No, just kidding. <laughs> I thought I thought the sex scenes felt totally natural, and I was really glad that they were there. And they they didn't seem 
they just felt like a, they felt like, okay, that's, that's it. I, I accepted it, you know, as part of what this novel was about. And I, I thought it was fascinating. I thought those were all, I just thought it was good. You know, I, 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 you know, fiction is like, can I do this? Well, you can, if the reader believes it, you know, and the reader thinks that it's important to the novel. And, and it did seem to have important, you know, relevance to the story that you were telling. So for me, it felt natural. And, and at times, you know, uh, it was funny, not not the sex scenes being funny because there's the, the you know the funny sex writing part, but like she could be funny about sex, and I thought that was helpful. And I thought you know it, it was it revealed character, and that's all you really care about, you know, as a reader. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, in that there is nothing. It's funny, been funny to read in you know some places when people read the novels, they have these sort of like weird reactions to reading. I don't know if they feel like it's an invasion or if it's just simply that their imaginations don't stretch that far or if they don't want their imaginations to stretch that far. But I think it would be political to write a novel about this and leave the sex out. Um, And the notion of just sort of sheer animal attraction between the two of them, actually, I think that was one of the most interesting things about the novel for me was the way in which the politics, like intimate relationships influenced politics in a way that I found to be extremely believable Um, And that that would play out in both, um, you know, to borrow Jim Shepard terms, like acute action and chronic action. Um, You know, you could see it in small scenes, the way that her mind would change about something or the way that it would change over like a really long relationship. And um, I feel like actually, you know, you and I have talked about this because it's a favorite book of I think both of ours were both fans of Ellen Emerson White. And I think that that's actually one of the only other political series where I've seen that kind of, you know, this. Um, and for those of our listeners who don't know this, uh, Ellen Emerson White is a fantastic writer who wrote a series of books that I think are technically classed as YA, although I think they would be of interest to almost anyone. And they're about the first woman president and her teenage daughter. And they're from the point of view of the teenage daughter. And, um, you know, I was thinking that like some of the stuff that I saw in your book, like some of the only other places I've seen it were in her work. Um, so and, like, and those... wait, remind me how recently you read those books because I th- I feel like I probably read them when I I loved them and I probably read them when I was about twelve ish I think I don't do you, do you know how old like how how old did you read them for the first time and how old were you when you read them most recently I must have read them for the first time early in high school or maybe late in middle school and I have read them again very recently um, and they were very interestingly they were written before the internet and they were reissued after the internet and um, she put in stuff so that the plot works with the, like Meg does, Meg, the main character does things like check her email um, in the reissue, which is very curious to me because she essentially had to reimagine all of these things with um, electronics. Cause that's actually one of the interesting, like um, things about the way time works in your book too. Like how you can see certain political events play out differently with different technology and different times. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself because I love your novels. Um, oh. Wait, but... by the way, I have a, I have a, a sort of like sex response thing because I do, oh, I do think that you, you both probably have a different take on this. Where I feel, and I, I think that most writers feel this way, like most fiction writers. I feel like you just do what serves the novel, and like you don't, you don't sort of worry about you know, your own embarrassment or I don't know, like it's like it's kind of like you put everything into the novel and then and so and so to me, I don't know that it's like if somebody's very hung up on the sex in the book, I mean, there's there's maybe like 
25% of me that's like a realist and understands the way stuff has to be summarized and that's very provocative and da, da, da. but then like 75% of me thinks that's like such a sort of like facile predictable and and even like minor thing to kind of focus on I don't know do you guys do you agree with that that you sort of you sort of like write the fiction and and let the chips fall where they may or do you think that that's I don't know like just an idiosyncratic take on it I certainly think that there is something to the fact that Hillary Clinton is the central character of the novel I mean of course she's she's not just a a known figure she's a known female figure you're a well-known woman writer right you know if when Updike wrote about sex um you know that's sort of like celebrated as revelatory and so great. And, you know, I'm glad I read the rabbit novels. Um, I'm also glad that you made her so human um, through, through all this. And so I do think, I mean, I certainly encourage my students and I also attempt to draft sort of from the perspective of almost like, like maybe no one will read this and I'll just write it exactly the way I would like to. And then if I take something out later, because I'm not sure that others will understand it in the way that I want, um, or that it might play in a different way than I had originally imagined, then fine. But like I throw in the kitchen sink and then I'm like, maybe I should take out this, this dish that seems dirty in the, in the kitchen sink. And I should, maybe I should take that out of there. But, um, by and large, you want to draft, right? Like chuck it all in there. I mean, yeah. what are you saving it for the next book? Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's that's important exactly. to me. It was important because she, one of the important parts about Hillary in her interior is that she keeps thinking she's not attractive and she keeps being uh, amazed that this guy, Bill Clinton, would be interested in her. And that seems like important in, in her like psycho- psychological development. And also a weird thing, because you were showing the, the novel before. I mean, you know, I look at her picture when she's young. She is There's no reason for her to think that she's unattractive, it seems like to me. So it tells me something about her psychologically, right? That is interesting and helpful as part of the book. It's interesting because um, the New York Times reporter, uh, Amy Chozik, who covered her 2016 campaign, says almost verbatim the thing that you just said, which is like, it's not true that he was more attractive, was or is more attractive than she is, but it's revealing that she seems to think so. It's also revealing that so many other people seem to think so, which I just find. Bef- I mean, I, I think, you know, I remember hearing you talk maybe in some other interview about just writing from the perspective of a smart woman <laughs> and how many smart women don't think that they're attractive or have been conditioned. I don't know that this this is the part that you said. This is the part that I started extrapolating. But, you know, you were talking about what does it mean that I haven't written from the point of view of a woman who is professionally successful in this particular way and that there aren't a ton of novels. And and then when I was reading about her thinking so badly of her own attractiveness and, and also having that reinforced by so many other people, you know, um, including notably in the novel, like her father, um, I was just thinking about all of the ways in which women are conditioned to have their to assume that attractiveness and intelligence are mutually exclusive. And she's so powerfully actually both, I think, in the novel. I agree. In, in the novel and in real life. Like, I th- she's gorgeous. I mean, I, I, which really even, I feel kind of sexist saying it, but it's like when she was, you know, spoke at the Democratic convention in her white pantsuit, like, oh my God, if I look like that in my late 60s, if I look like that in my, in my late 40s, like, I'd be overjoyed. Yeah, I know. It's, it, yeah. One of the other tricks here that I, I'm not a trick, but one of the techniques that I really like of what you're doing, and you did this with Laura Bush also in American Wife, as many people have noted, but is that it's like, 
one of the secrets I think you've discovered here is how poorly we imagine the interior lives of our political figures. So it's all becomes Vince Foster and, you know, hit lists and, you know, the, and, and, and the fact is they obviously have non-cartoon lives. And in a lot of fiction, the point is like escalating the life of an average person to the point where it seems grand, right? So like, you know, in, in, in James Joyce's Ulysses, we're going to pretend that this regular Irish guy is actually this Greek hero, right? But in, if with a politician like Hillary or Laura Bush, the point is to like tone it down, right? To get away from that stuff and back off so that people can see them at rest and in regular sort of situations. One of the things that I really liked here is that you talk a lot about the work that Hillary does, particularly early on in her career. And I was so impressed by it because I knew that it was based on reality. And, um, you know, she investigates housing violations. She works with child services. She's a lawyer on the House Judiciary Committee impeachment inquiry. She works for the National Children's Initiative like researching how private schools are trying to avoid Brown versus Board of Education. And this is all like in her 20s. And I just feel completely, I'm like, okay, I didn't do anything. I have not even achieved what this woman has achieved by the time she was 28 years old. You know, like you realize what a worker she was. Yeah, I mean, all I can like, amen to all of that. I mean, <laughs> one, like I, I think that, you know, sometimes it, it, there's this sort of tendency I think maybe for for most of us to feel like a famous person only exists when we are observing them. And so like a politician only exists when they're giving a speech and, you know, they don't they don't exist like eating a granola bar in an SUV, you know, between events or like they don't they don't exist brushing their teeth at night. And um, I don't know, maybe maybe social media is dispelling some of that. But Um, yeah, so I do, I do think that like, you know, it can feel weirdly revelatory to show famous people in kind of mundane daily moments. Um, but then, but I also think, you know, I think real Hillary, like almost all of, the the kind of work she does is grounded in reality and i mean i'm i'm sure you guys know that some some people there are these sort of two opposing views which are this idea like oh hillary would never have been able to run for senate and then you know never have been qualified to run for president if she hadn't been first lady like if if she hadn't been sort of riding bill clinton's coattails and then i think the opposite viewpoint is oh like you know, he was completely holding her back and she was always the more talented one and the more impressive one, you know, from from the time that she was like a Wellesley student or um, a law student. And I think, you know, probably the truth is somewhere in between that, that like, I think they both, you know, probably helped each other and maybe had impulses that weren't in each other's best interests. But but yeah, it's true. Doing Doing research, I would sometimes think like, you know, some of the people who think they don't like Hillary, I, I want to say, okay, can you recount her biography? Like, just just tell me in a few sentences, like, what she did in each decade. And and there are some critics who I think could probably say, like, here, like, okay. And then, but I think a lot of people would be like, I don't know. Yeah. And I think you're sort of um, getting at one of the things about the novel that's the most interesting to me. Um, you know, the ways that you engage with reality and history. And I'm going to attempt to do this uh, without revealing too much of the delightful plot. Um, 
But your book has some very, very satisfying set pieces in which we see real speeches in alternate settings, or in which one character is swapped out, or in which a person emerges in a different time period than the one that we know them to have emerged in. And one of my favorite parts kind of almost reframed the novel for me so that we can understand the question not as, you know, and you you kind of also just did this, so that we can understand the question not as, what if Hillary didn't marry Bill, but which moments in Bill's life would suck without her? Um... And to paraphrase the Kelly Clarkson song. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, And so I'm curious if you could just talk to us about how you figured out how you were going to Jenga times, place and people and and talk through maybe a favorite scene in that vein that you feel like you can talk about in that way without giving stuff away. Well, I did. I mean, I, I, I in some ways I was very literal about the premise like if Bill and Hillary had not gotten married you know like that would affect Bill's 1991-92 presidential run you know if if the person standing next to him was someone other than Hillary um but like for example um you know there's a there's a sort of part that that kind of talks about like Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearings and presumably whether the Clintons got married would not have affected those hearings or that nomination. Um, So some of it was just trying to like think in a very literal way. Although, I mean, there's also like, like if I, if, if you said to me, do you, is this really, is the life that's laid out in Rodham really the life you think Hillary would have lived? Like, I think probably not. I think if she if she hadn't married Bill, she probably would have, you know, married someone else. But if I made her, um, you know, some trailblazing female lawyer in the suburbs of Milwaukee who had three kids, at some point that's not a novel about Hillary Rodham or Hillary Clinton. Like, there have to be echoes of reality and sort of tensions with reality, I think, to make it interesting. And so sort of as, as you're getting at, um, so much of the history in the book remains the same, including some notable screw ups, uh, which is another one of my favorite parts of the book. Hillary still talks about baking cookies, for example, and she gets called condescending and, and she does at one point use the term deplorable. But beyond that, you invented these great things that fit with and around those incidents kind of like puzzle pieces, which are political fuck-ups that seem to me entirely invented. I mean, maybe I'm not recognizing them from history, but they just seem like these great, totally plausible political fuck-ups. When you're trying to create an incident that gets your character in the right level of trouble, how do you do it? (laughs) Um, Well, again, because you're fiction writers, I think that you guys probably understand this in a way. Um that like like I feel like I I try something and then it exists on the page and either it it works or it doesn't work and if it doesn't work I change it like a lot I mean I don't think there's any sort of uh, like I I do outline but it's not like I know if something will succeed on the page without doing it do you bat around ideas with people? So when I do this, for example, when I try to get my character in the right level of trouble, I'll sometimes put it on the page and be like, oh no, that doesn't work. But sometimes I'm too slow to realize that. And so I have a friend, um, a couple of friends in particular, who I call up sometimes after I've written a first draft and I, and I say, you know, I maybe haven't even asked them to read it. And I say, is this situation plausible? And they're like, yeah, something like that kind of happened. 
um, actually, but it would be more interesting if you did it this way. They often have awesome plot ideas. They're all anthropologists. Really? Um, well, I mean, I write about Sri Lanka, which has yeah. a particular tradition with anthropology. And so they're also storytellers in a different way. And they're, they're really fun to bat around plot with. And I was kind of wondering, you know, reading your book, were you calling up um, people who had reported on Hillary Clinton or just friends of yours in the political world? You know, I know, um, you know, you have family in politics. Um, Maybe she just called people... up Amy Klobuchar and tried to find out what <laughs> I was Amy about Klobuchar. to say. <laughs> yeah, Amy and I would have lunch. No, I'm just I've never met. I've never met Amy Klobuchar. I've never met Hillary Clinton. Um, my brother, who's nine years younger than I am, is an elected member of Cincinnati's city council in his third term. So um, so I would sometimes ask him questions. I and, and actually, my sister, I have two sisters, but one of them is an environmental lobbyist. I feel like I always have to say the good kind of environmental lobbyist. And, and so sometimes I'd ask her questions, too. I mean, I definitely I did research um but I do not do the thing that you're describing, Sugi. I do not describe hypothetical plots, I think, almost ever to to friends because I feel like it's almost all in the execution. And like, like Whitney, you were you saying, oh, you know, you can do whatever you can get away with. And so something that might seem implausible actually can can read as fine on the page or something that you thought was such a great idea can sort of just not work. And sometimes I can feel myself writing a bad scene or an implausible scene, but actually writing it helps me understand what's wrong with it in a way I don't think I could have understood in my head. Well, that makes me feel better because I can't plot for shit. And so if I write anything out, outlines that I write or if I'm stupid enough to do it the minute that I start writing a scene it all just goes away because you know like the scene starts happening and then you're like well this thing I wrote down in my outline that seems like it's a good plot move is not at all a plot move I can't make it happen on the page and so I have to do something else and so my only way of finding plot is by doing what you're talking about by seeing if although it works. you know so I do outline but I probably have one sentence in an outline corresponds to anywhere from like half a page to 10 pages, you know, in, in the book. So it's like, you know, Hillary goes to see her old friend, Marine and Marine reveals blah, blah, blah. And, and like, maybe that's a paragraph or maybe it's nine pages, but, um, so there's still, I, I think that that's how I find the balance between, feeling like I have a path forward and still having access to some spontaneity or discovery. But don't you think, I mean, I find even when I diverge from an outline that it's still useful. Um, yes. And it seems like also like some of what we're saying about like plausibility and stuff also has to do with like, I mean, questions of audience. And so I wonder also, I mean, when you are thinking about, you know, traveling that line of what's plausible or what's not, you know, even before you were talking about, um, you know, it would be boring if she were a lawyer in Milwaukee, right? There's some line of interest. And so you're imagining who will be interested. Um, who was that? Well, th that's such a good question, because I, I think that being a fiction writer, there's such a kind of fine line between not anticipating your your book being out in the world and like kind of not caring, you know, what anyone 
thinks except for you by yourself, like, you know, sitting at your desk or, or wherever you write. And then on the other side of that, understanding that, you know, there probably will be an audience and this is not a diary entry. And and I think I think that's a that's a complicated thing to balance. And I mean, I I probably err on the side of just feeling like like, you know, as you were saying, like throw everything but the kitchen sink and um and then kind of sort it out later. In Rodham, one of Hillary's good friends and mentors is a fictional a black woman named Gwen Greenberger. Uh, Gwen often acts as a sounding board for Hillary's ideas, but when, when she criticizes Hillary's decisions or calls Hillary out on benefiting from white privilege, Hillary is not like super good at listening to her comments on that. And this alters their friendship. And I wondered if you could sort of uh, read a section from their relationship. We would talk about it more after you read. I should say this takes place in 2015. In the morning, I woke up to a text from Teresa. Just a heads up, Gwen Greenberger wrote op-ed for today's Wash Post endorsing Kamala Harris. To my surprise, tears filled my eyes. Kamala Harris, whom I'd met just once, was the Attorney General of California, had announced her Senate bid in January, and was of Black and Indian descent. In early 1992, a week after I'd told Gwen Greenberger that I was running for Senate, but before I'd publicly announced, I'd received a long letter from her. I implore you to reconsider your decision to oppose Carol Mosley Braun in the primary, Gwen had written. This is an opportunity for you to help lift not only another woman, but a black woman. To compete against her is a betrayal of your principles and undermines your commitment to both racial advancement and feminism. Reading this letter devastated me. There was no one whose opinion I respected more than Gwen's, but it didn't change my mind for the reason I'd already conveyed to Gwen. Although I liked Carol, I just didn't think she had a shot at beating Alan Dixon in the primary. I wrote back saying as much, and then I didn't have contact with Gwen until almost a year later. My campaign literature and eventual ads prominently mentioned my time with the National Children's Initiative, but I neither asked for nor received any financial or verbal support from Gwen. When Deb at the Victoria Project suggested that we ask Gwen to co-host a fundraiser for me in Washington, I explained that I didn't feel I could. At various junctures during the campaign, when I won the primary, when I won the election, I thought I'd hear from Gwen. I'd hoped that the way events unfolded would vindicate my argument. But I was the one who initiated contact again. In December 92, I sent a Christmas card to the Greenbergers along with another letter just for her. I'm so sorry that we never saw eye to eye on my Senate run, I wrote. The idea of moving to Washington three weeks from now and not getting to see you on a regular basis breaks my heart. After I arrive, can I please take you out for lunch and express in person how important you are to me? I sincerely believe that our friendship transcends any political or personal disagreements. Gwen's response was two typed sentences. Hillary, I see nothing more for us to discuss. I hope that your time in the Senate will serve to remind you of the ideals you embraced as a young woman. But I knew I'd run into both Gwen and Richard eventually. And about six weeks after I was sworn in, Gwen and I attended the same reception for a teacher's federation. When I approached her, I deliberately didn't hug her, but it seemed preposterous to pretend we didn't know each other well. 
You can't avoid me forever, I said in a friendly tone, and she looked at me with an expression of contempt that I had seen before in her face, but never for me. I certainly can, she said. From then on, on the two or three occasions a year we were in the same place, I gave her a wide berth, and the same was true with Richard, though he'd at least acknowledge me with a nod. A few years later, I had the surreal experience of asking Gwen questions when she testified before the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, of which I was a member. Gwen was acting as an expert witness prior to the reauthorization of the National School Lunch Program. I sat at the horseshoe-shaped dais and addressed her as Dr. Greenberger. More than one university had given her an honorary doctorate, and she sat behind the witness table and addressed me as Senator Rodham. I recalled driving with her to Fayetteville 20 years earlier, feeling pulled between her and Bill. It would have been unfathomable if I'd been told that two decades later, my relationships with both of them would be somewhere between distant and non-existent. Curtis, thank you so much for that reading, which is one of my absolute favorite and I think most moving parts of the novel. Um, I think that one of the things that the book does, it's an alternate history, which presents this sort of better version of Hillary that voters would likely have been more receptive to, I think. Um, But an alternate history means an alternate future. So I'm wondering, and this is something we asked our listeners, what do you think the world would look like if Hillary Rodham or Hillary Clinton would have won the 2016 election? Sad face. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um... Well, by the way, I feel like one thing I should say is that the fictional version of Hillary is, I mean, I admire her and she's definitely supposed to be flawed and make bad decisions as all of us sometimes do. And she's not supposed to be saintly or perfect. I don't think that would be realistic or interesting. I mean, I think that if she were president, you know, policy would be very different. Like I, it's... I don't know. I mean, I I do think about, you know, the 2016 election and, you know, if you had said to me, like, what's the worst that could happen? It's hard to imagine that I would have been able to imagine a situation worse than like the one we're living in now in so many different ways. I mean, you know, just... Yeah, yeah. Like in terms of the pandemic or in terms of like the, you know, racism and the sexism coming out of the White House. And especially, obviously, we're talking right now um, in the week after George Floyd's death. Um, And just to have, I mean, I I feel like you can't even say like leadership, like to have, you know, the sort of political what I need a synonym that's not leader, like the political head of state. I mean, um, well, these... it would be nice to have a non insane person running the yeah. country. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, we yeah. have an insane person who lies constantly. One of the things that Hillary doesn't do, uh, in the book is lie very much, you know. I feel like that, in, and a lot of people in the public view is, is see her as only a liar, right? Um, but it's, it's, it seems clear to me that it, your fictional view of her psychologically is that that's not something that she does. I think that that is, I think that that's true. Like, I I sometimes think about if I, um, like, you know, on my street, if one of my neighbors said, okay, that person who lives in the red house um, is really corrupt and dishonest. 
And then, like, if the person said that, you know, once a week for 10 years or for 25 years, and then, and then like, sometimes I interacted with that neighbor in the, the red house, and, and I thought, like, maybe they're okay. But it's, like, how, like, like that's how I feel, that, that there's been such a sort of, you know, level of criticism leveled at her for so long that inevitably some of it has stuck, even though very little of it is grounded in fact. And so a lot of people, including Democrats, have this kind of, you know, vague sense of like not totally liking her, not totally trusting her, like not thinking she was the right candidate for 2016 or like somehow it's uniquely her fault that Trump is president. Instead of maybe approaching it from the outside and thinking like, what have we been told about her? When did that start? Like, who was the source of that? So that's interesting. Because yeah, I think we do get right and we see some version of this with Trump, right? That um, what is repeated eventually sticks in some way, even with people who we would think and hope would know better, and then seemingly don't. Also, I mean, she would not... uh regardless of your opinion on how much Hillary Clinton lies as a politician, she would not decide that science is not real. She, you know, like, I feel like uh, empirical science was in a, is similar to, you know, like her work ethic, right? Like she wants to know how things really operate and try to work things according to the way that things should operate. She wants to have a plan. All of those things would be nice. Like we would have contact tracing and we would have a shitload of tests for everyone to take. And a lot less people would have died if she were president. You know, I I mean, I just think that's oddly enough, this pandemic is something that she would be very good at. I can imagine other things that she'd be bad at, but this would be something she'd be good at, I think. I, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like she's very responsible. She's very prepared. She does her homework. You know, she sort of seeks out experts to, you know, get information that, that she doesn't have, which is just, uh, yeah, like, I mean, a total opposite of, of the procedure that's like now in the White House. And literally everything both of you just said could apply also to Elizabeth Warren. Um, who is actually still pushing all of those things despite the fact that she didn't get the nomination. And so, which I think, you know, goes back to the what you're suggesting essentially about how systemically, um, you know, maybe we're directed to view women um, politicians, which isn't to say that either Hillary Clinton or Elizabeth Warren are flawless, quite far from it. But um, look at you bringing everything back around to the original idea. Just, yeah, just Curtis makes it so easy. Um <laughs> And Curtis, we really, really appreciate your coming on the show this week. It's a weird week here. And um, thanks for making the time. And uh, we encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of Rodham. Curtis, thank you so much. Thank you both so much. This was a pleasure. I like to think that I'm a, I'm a friend of the podcast. Like, you know, the way, the way some people are friends of The Daily Show. Or I like to think <laughs> I'm, you I'm are. your friend. Thank you so much. We'll see you soon. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. Thanks to UMN student Dylan Mietinen for his work on this episode. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. 
In each of these spots, you'll find links to our Lit Hub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned today. I'm recording this farewell from my new nightly watch in Minneapolis. Later this week is George Floyd's memorial service here. We join those mourning him, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and others murdered as a result of police brutality, gun violence, and racism. Our next episode will be about these protests and calls to defund the police, led by Black Lives Matter. Stay tuned.